This is part four of the Love, Rinse, Repeat 50th episode special. We're halfway through. I hope you've been enjoying these words uh, illuminated by these wonderful guests. And the wonderful guests continue with David Congdon joining me to talk about the fourth word from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please welcome David. And once again, welcome back to episode 50, spread over seven parts. This is Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, David Congdon, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, episode 50, Seven Last Words. Uh, We are talking about uh, the last words from uh, Matthew, uh, well, not just Matthew, but and about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jumping right in, what do you hear in these words? Well, these words for me um, indicate the scandal of the gospel. Um, they, they crystallize and encapsulate uh, something that is deeply offensive and scandalous for most believers, this notion that um, God might be absent, to, you know, absent from us in our hour of need, in the most critical moment of our existence, this, uh, this pivotal turning point of Jesus' history, his life, and perhaps we might say of our own. And uh, you know, I think there is, uh, there's a lot of literature surrounding this one phrase and how to, uh, how to incorporate it safely into our theologies. Um, we want to find ways to sanitize it and make it innocuous for our, our faith. Um, we, <clears throat> and that's often done by, by appealing to the psalm from which it's drawn uh, or appeals maybe to the doctrine of the Trinity and the security that this is all taken care of by the fact that it's one eternal being of God. And so we don't have to worry about this, uh, this crisis of faith that we might say that Jesus is having in that moment. And I find those strategies to be um, offensive in a different way um, because they lessen and divert us from hearing the scandal of that statement. Um, And they find ways to make it safe for us. Um, And I don't think it's supposed to be safe. Um, I don't think this passage is meant to be um, easily and beautifully incorporated into our liturgies. It's meant to be an interruption and a disruption of ourselves, um, of our worship, of our theology, our practice, um, and our politics. So um, in in that sense, I think that's what I hear in that statement is something uh, deeply disturbing to Christian faith and theology. Mm, Thank you. And I think what's interesting, I reckon there must be a, a link then, you know, it's not obviously not a universal issue that the church faces, but a link then from a kind of trying to quickly absorb this statement into a neater theology or into a liturgy uh, or into our piety. And, you know, the, the struggle Christians sometimes face when, when talking with someone who is, you know, in a moment of, of God forsakenness, of God abandonment and, and struggling to, to kind of meet that person in that moment without trying to get to the end of the psalm and, and re- remind them where that ends. Uh, 
So I guess how does this, how does acknowledging that this is a disruption, an interruption and a scandal in, in the first sense, uh, you know, help in, in the sense of like, you know, those kind of interpersonal encounters that we um, often find ourselves in? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the pastoral implications of this are, I, I would take it to be, it doesn't mean that there isn't comfort here or that there isn't a word of hope or of grace, uh, of presence even. But I do think it means that we have to rethink what that comfort looks like, what that presence of God looks like, not to be in competition with the absence and with the disruption. So to put it a certain way, um, God's presence is found precisely in this moment of absence. Um, one of the problems I have with the reference to the psalm or uh, to other theological strategies of dealing with this passage uh, are that they, they assume, they presuppose that absence and presence are in competition with each other, that we have to, if, if God is absent, God can't be present. If God is present, God is no longer absent. Um, and I think that's precisely what we don't find in scripture, what we don't find in this passage in particular, but, but really throughout the, the narratives of the gospels and, um, and Christian theology more, more generally uh, rooted in the incarnation, this notion of simultaneously divine human, simultaneously, you know, transcendent and imminent and, and, um, and uh, um, historical, uh, those kinds of paradoxes and simultaneities, uh, the coincidence of opposite opposites, um, I think are really important here. And that in this passage in some ways brings all that together, this paradox of God's presence being found in and through absence, or to put it another way, the glory of the resurrection found in and through the suffering of the cross. Uh, that's another of those moments when we want to like make the resurrection a fix of the crucifixion, kind of a, you know, um, the problem and answer. I don't think that's really what we find in scripture or what we find um, in our understanding of, uh, of Christ. But um, what we see instead, I think, is that um, the resurrection comes in and through the cross, right? It's simultaneous with that event. Um, the resurrection reveals to us what the, what the crucifixion is all about, what it really is. Um, and in this same sense here, God's absence in this moment uh, clarifies for us what God's presence actually is. Um, God's presence everywhere is a kind of in, is an invisible presence, a presence that is not something that we can grasp hold of and, and say, God is here, secure, as my possession. Um, what this moment of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me kind of unveils for us is that um, we don't ever have the grasp, a hold of God. We, can't, we don't ever have possession of God. And so um, <clears throat> in that sense, we can take comfort in the fact that, uh, that those moments of, of abandonment that we experience, those moments of feeling like we are truly, utterly alone, um, we are most fully identified in, that, in those moments with Jesus, where we are most fully in that place um, of, his, of, his, of that experience that he shared in. Uh, and we can, become, we can have the knowledge and comfort that, that those moments are where we will most precisely find the presence of God. And, and so it's not going to be a presence that's going to uh, wipe away any, any of our fears or dispel any of our anxieties and, and doubts. But, um, but that's precisely 
kind of what we need to discover in those moments, what, those, what that reveals for us. Um, we don't need to run away from our fears. We don't need to try to escape our anxieties or our insecurities. Um, those, God doesn't uh, un, you know, annihilate those or you know, get rid of all those for us. Rather, God meets us precisely in those moments. Mm. Thank you. I think then that also like not only meeting us in those moments and not only a word that we don't have to flee from that or suppress that, but it's when we then encounter that in the other, when we encounter others in those, uh, those states, either, you know, an existential uh, personal crisis or people who have been pushed out by, by the society and by the religious order, that too is where we're going to um, encounter God very fully and present. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I definitely think there is a, a um, there's a social dimension to this in terms of it, it calls us to ally ourselves to those who are um, abandoned and um, maybe marginalized by, by the, by the, by the structures and, 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 and the religious communities that are, you know, kind of guaranteeing presence and, and security. So, um, and, and it definitely should hopefully awaken us to the needs of those around us who are experiencing uh, that, that those moments of, of uncertainty and doubt and absence in their life. Thank you. So, so in the past, when we've talked, when you've been on Love, Ridge, Repeat, twice it was to talk about your book, The God Who Saves, right. and we're already been drawing material from this because, you know, as you say, the, it's the God who saves. Uh, and so much of your book is centered on this moment of, of God forsakenness, of God abandonment, of being taken outside oneself in this moment. But that that is, as you say, uh, when you're talking before about hope and comfort, because that is the site of salvation. That is, that is where salvation interrupts um, our lives individually. Each and every person is in, in those own moments where we have this experience. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, this, this line, this, this word from the cross, more so than maybe, you know, one we're going to get to soon, it is finished, uh, you know, is, is linked so well to the, the, the side of salvation. Right. Well, I mean, so part of my, my larger project in that book is to develop what I, what I call an apocalyptic account of salvation. And the reason why that passage is important to me um, for a number of reasons, but it does, it does seem for me, it does uh, indicate this apocalyptic nature of this, cri- of this cross event, this what's happening. Um, and partly it's because the narratives of Matthew and Mark in particular kind of um, un- can disclose some of that. You have, well, the overall apocalyptic tone of Mark in general um, brings us to this climax of Mark 15 when that passage appears. And it does have this, uh, escalating an apocalyptic tone until this this critical moment occurs, and uh, <clears throat> so it serves a kind of narrative climax. Matthew makes it even more kind of poignant by by adding that kind of uh, a rather mysterious section, um, Matthew twenty seven, following the that that cry where you know you have the people being resurrected out of these tombs and walking around the streets of Jerusalem. Um, and so you do have uh, you, both these, both of these texts uh, kind of highlight this almost otherworldly uh, uh, incomprehensible mystery of this event. And 
what I, what I want to do in, the, in my work is to highlight the way in which that, that, sh- that, that should reveal something to us about what salvation is all about. It's not, um, uh, a lot of people want to put the salvation to be later on. It's like you know, these, these events are only uh, about the person of Jesus, but they don't speak about anything about ourselves. They're, they're unique to that story. I don't disclose anything about what salvation means uh, for you and for me today. And I think that's, um, that's too limited a, a scope for me, too narrow a vision of theology. I, I do think that these events do connect to each person, but in, in, in other ways. And the way I, I, I frame it in my work is to understand faith as this moment of identification with the crucified one, specifically identification with the one crucified in God abandonment. Um, and so um, what that allows us to do if we frame salvation in those terms is both to kind of make better sense, I think, of the apocalyptic character of salvation more generally in in theology, but specifically to recognize the way in which salvation is not uh, this um, holy comforting message of rescue out of our problems. One of the ongoing struggles I think uh, there is with Christian preaching and pastoral ministry and and really just theology more generally is this what i was saying before this opposition between absence and presence between uh salvation and anxiety and fear and doubt faith and doubt that that binary opposition that often um leads people to think that if they do have doubts they must not have genuine faith if they do have anxiety they must not have genuine confidence in god's god's power and god's love or grace and those, those that present a whole host of other pastoral issues that need to be addressed theologically. And they, they, they begin from a problematic starting point, this, this presupposition that, um, that these things are, are opposed, mutually exclusive, and um, if there's one, then there's not the other. And so uh, I want to get beyond that. I want to really think theologically beyond those binaries. And um, what that will be, it's a, it'll be a scandal for those who have taken a lot of comfort in those binaries, you know, who have rested very securely in their knowledge of their election, their knowledge of their faith, their, their knowledge of God, and their, all, all, of those, all of those securities of knowledge and experience that people have invested so much of their energy into. Um, so my, my theological approach will definitely call a lot, a lot of that into question, but I do hope that it will also be a word of comfort for those who have felt marginalized by those comforts and those securities, who have felt um, excluded from the community of the faithful because they've never been able to have that supreme, serene confidence in God's presence and, and uh, power in their life. Um, I do want, I want to give a word, I want to speak a word of, of grace and, and salvation really to those people. Um, and I think that's where we see Jesus most present in the, in the gospels. And that's where I think we see Jesus most present today. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that's really excellent. It's like, I've always appreciated about your work in the God who saves it. Otherwise is, you know, People might think when they first hear that, oh, you're diving in on this and you're blowing up these binaries, that it's just this like um, sledgehammer attack to everything people hold dear and dear. But it is, is, is a work filled with, with grace and hope uh, and, and encouragement to, to those probably who need it 
uh, needed. I hope so. Yeah. Now, um, another thing I was thinking about with this word from the cross, like the Bible is, is it's more like, like when they were writing the Bible and these letters and these, and these gospels, it was more, it's more like Twitter than a blog, right? You've got to use your characters sparingly. You've only got so much <laughs> parchment. You can only fit so much and, 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 you know, you've got to, you've got to use it sparingly. So usually not a lot of extra detail, extraneous detail is put in. Yet we have it written out twice. We have it written in, in, in Aramaic and then in, then in would have been in Greek, but you know, and and in uh, you know, even in English translations, we keep one in this foreign tongue and then put one into the translated uh, translated language, uh, which obviously has to be a, a very deliberate choice. Uh, now, you've kind of talked about this text as an interruption, as a, as something that's very other, um, especially with what Matthew adds. You know, do you think that is part of it, or do you have any other thoughts on why why it's been included twice in in different in different languages? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I haven't actually pondered that uh, much myself. I mean, I think that's, I think you're right. It absolutely is a deliberate choice. I, um, my guess, if I had to use, put my historical critical hat on for a moment, <laughs> would be that it is, uh, there were received oral traditions handed on to the community of Jesus followers in that, in that period. And they had, they were used to, maybe liturgically referring to that statement um, in, in Aramaic. Um, and so perhaps um, it was important to keep that in there in that form as to, to indicate that liturgical historical uh, tradition that had been passed on. Um, so I think there's probably some oral tradition going on there. Uh, that's, that's behind that. Uh, I, I, I mean, I certainly do think it also uh, maybe gestures in the direction of the, um, translatability of of the gospel more generally. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's certainly something that's been important to my work, the emphasis on the uh, non-exclusive nature of, of this message that's not bound to a specific language or culture. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's an interesting, worthwhile thought, mm. uh, you know, uh, question to ponder further. I haven't I'll give, it more, give it more thought myself. Mm. Yeah, I think we, have, we can offer that to people as something to, you know, tweet at us with your best ideas. Um, but I think that translatability thing is interesting because you think about, like, so the psalm is written in Hebrew. Uh, most people in that time probably reading it in Greek. Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus says it in Aramaic, and now we read it in Aramaic, a language we've completely lost uh, any kind of contact with, and in English. So it's like it's, yeah. or, in what, or in German or in, in Chinese or in, <laughs> right. in sure, Chinese, yeah. sorry, um, or, or yeah. whatever. Uh, you know, so that, that, that is an interesting um, thread to pull. Um, so I guess the final, final question as we kind of land this plane is, I mean, and we've already kind of been touching on it, but I guess, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this and putting this out there is, you know, there won't be Good Friday services in the way we are used to having them. Like, I mean, lots of churches are going online or doing written things or, the, you know, lots of very good creative work has been done. Uh, but, you know, this is a, a moment of God abandonment uh, on the cross and a moment that many people are feeling uh, abandoned and isolated and, 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 and acutely alone. Uh, do you think, do you have any thoughts to share as we kind of close out on, on, on this word from the cross in, in the time of COVID-19 and the time of isolation and distancing and the closure of churches and the disruption of our familiar uh, routines in Holy Week and just in, in, in general? 
Yeah, I mean, I do uh, think that this passage is maybe uniquely appropriate for this moment. I mean, we're um, we're seeing this rapid increase in in uh, cases and deaths around the world right now, and it's um, certainly a moment of of terror for a lot of folks uh, and uh, deep stress and anxiety. Um, and I so there, this is in some ways. Um, uh, you know, a why have you forsaken me moment for for many people, and I, I, um, you know, I was reminded as I participated in a Zoom church <laughs> this past week that um, uh, it one of the things I've I've always um, it's been important to me in thinking through what it means to, to be a Christian, what it means to have Christian faith and, and what that entails is um, the importance of, of distinguishing between the reality of faith, the genuineness of faith and participation in a corporate body of worship. Um, that's been important for me because I haven't always felt very connected to a church, to the any community that, I mean, I've been a part of various churches over the years um, and it's been a kind of a love-hate relationship on my part. For, <laughs> and I think it's true for, for many people. And that doesn't mean I, I you know, disregard it or don't think it's important. Um, but I, I, do, I, I do think that um, this whole experience is helping us to embrace and, and discover in new ways um, the invisibility of the church. Um, which is uh, something that often gets uh, short shrift nowadays in theology. Um, and I, But there's something about that doctrine and that idea that is important. It's been important to me for a long time, and I think it's important for theology more generally. And, and it's to remember that um, uh, the church isn't, isn't confined to the, to, to the physical spaces and locations that we have erected as as kind of those visible markers of community, as important as those may be, um, as valuable as our liturgies and our practices uh, often are, um, the spirit of God is not bound to them and is not confined to the locations that we've um, marked out to encounter that spirit. Um, and I do hope that people... Um, are maybe embracing and discovering new ways of, of encountering God. I, I recall Wendell Berry who spent, you know, decade plus, you know, going to church in the, will, in the, in the woods to write poetry on his own. And um, that, that for him was a deeply rejuvenating and, and, you know, spiritual experience for a long time, uh, his kind of estrangement from the church. And I think that in some ways is a practice that we could live into in these moments, um, you know, writing poetry in the, in the woods or wherever one might be, um, might be what it means to participate in that invisible church that unites and binds us all. So, um, that's been, that's been my, my time right now. That's been certainly been my experience and I hope that's true for other people as well. But, um, but yeah, I, the spirit of God is still moving and active in ways that are not, confined by our ecclesial, our ecclesiastical structures and institutions. And that's an important thing that we need to continue, continually be reminded about. Thank you. What a wonderful place to end. 
if you have uh, enjoyed some of the things David's been saying, you can uh, read about them in much more detail uh, and with much more uh, implications for the whole uh, breadth of theology in The God Who Saves, a dogmatic sketch. Uh, you have a few other books, especially if you're interested in Rudolf Bultmann, you can check out David's books on that. Uh, you're at D.W. Congdon on Twitter. That's right. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to draw people's attention to at this moment? That's about it. Yeah, thank you very much, Liam. Appreciate no, it. Great. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, another word is about to start. <laughs>